Well, some of you are old enough to remember, and some of you perhaps remember hearing about, a time when our city made national news in a very strange way. In the September of 1963, when an elephant, a 3,000-pound, 12-year-old female Asian elephant named Raji, rebelled against her trainers during a performance, a circus performance, in the parking lot of Logan Square, just down Holmes Road, a few blocks right here, and escaped into the streets of this very neighborhood, the old Everett neighborhood, and went on kind of a rampage, aggravated by the the pursuit of nearly 4,000 local residents. I find this story both fascinating and incredibly sad, that provoked by a growing crowd, this elephant took her rampage first through the the store itself, Arlen's Discount Store, through menswear, sporting goods, and the gifts department, just trampling things, before leading police on a two-mile chase almost all the way down to Kavanaugh Road, during which she injured a 67-year-old man, tried to move a car, and caused thousands of dollars worth of damage, eventually being shot and killed by police. The incident was widely reported, including a photo spread in Life magazine. Not exactly the attention we probably wanted on a national level. And in 2011, the State Journal did a retrospective on the event, and some of those who had then been teenagers who had goaded on the creature recalled it with what they described as sober regret. That's often what happens when we try to control things that are beyond our control. We later look back with sober regret. But as humans, I think we tend to try to control everything, especially the further we advance as humanity. I mean, we've harnessed now the power of the atom, and we think, is there anything that's not under our control? And in this text today that we're going to look at, there is great effort to control the ultimate power of the universe in a way that is absolutely ridiculous. In fact, as we enter the home stretch of Lent, I want to talk about two even stranger stories than Raji the Elephant from the Scriptures. Stories that are off-putting, unsettling, and one found in 2 Samuel 6, the other in 1 Samuel 4, both revolving around this mysterious object of the Old Testament known as the Ark of the Covenant. Now, if you don't know what the Ark of the Covenant really is, or if you only know what you learned from Indiana Jones, let me give you the quick overview. You can read Exodus 25 is described physically in great detail, as long as you know know, how to do the cubits conversion. It's a chest made of acacia wood, covered in gold. It's a little shy of four feet long, about two feet wide, a little more, and about two feet tall. And this chest uh, was kind of the central point of worship and life in Israel. The lid of the ark was also covered in gold with a crown around it, a raised border, and on the top were two cherubim, golden cherubim facing inward. Now cherubim, you might think, cherub, oh yeah, okay, fat little babies with stubby wings and bows and arrows. No, we're not 100% sure what they look like, but they're frightening. And there's something about this that is very fitting because the lid of the ark was called the mercy seat and was, in essence, the throne of God himself in the Old Testament economy. It was the place where the omnipresent God particularly manifested his special presence, his his Shekinah glory, right between the cherubim above the mercy seat. 
And on either side of this chest, then, were two gold rings. So two here, two here, through which were run poles, which then could be used by the Levites and only the Levites. Remember, the Levites were the priestly tribe to carry the Ark of the Covenant from place to place so that they could lift it and carry it without touching the Ark itself because of how very holy it was. Inside the Ark, don't look when they open the Ark, but I'll tell you what's inside. Inside the Ark, we would find, according to Hebrews and according to the Old Testament, the uh, remnants of those original tablets with the Ten Commandments that God had written the commandments on and Moses brought down from Sinai. You would find Aaron's rod, which had miraculously budded, and you would find a container containing some, a sample of the manna that had come from heaven uh, during the time of wandering in the wilderness. So these are all reminders of God's great working amongst them and his great and holy word that he had given to them. So it's no surprise that the ark is associated with great miracles in the Bible. And it very much is. Uh, you probably still have fresh in your mind our study of Joshua from 2007. If not, I'll remind you uh, that when they were coming finally out of the wilderness and into the promised land, as they crossed the Jordan, the Levites holding it, and it was probably four Levites, not like Indy and Salah. One, you know, gold's heavy even when it's just overlain. So one here, one here, one there, one there, holding the, the poles. As they walked in, as their feet went into the water, as they waded in, just as the soles of their shoes touched the water, the Jordan River began to pile up. It stopped flowing so that they could cross over on dry ground. That's quite a miracle. The ark played a key role in some military victories, including that great first victory when they went around and around the city of Jericho and then blew the trumpets and the walls came crumbling down. The ark was, by and large, a blessing to the people of Israel and a great curse to all of her enemies. And so it makes perfect sense that right on the heels of having defeated the Philistines, their centuries-long rival and enemy, the Philistines, that David wants to bring the Ark of the Covenant out of Kiriath-Jerim, this rather obscure town where it has been languishing for 20 years in the home of a Levite named Abinadab. He wants to bring it out of Abinadab's house and into Jerusalem, into the heart of Israel, because that's truly where it belongs, because in a sense it is the heart of Israel. And so we read here in 2 Samuel 6, verse 3, They carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart. So this mood is beyond festive here. This isn't simply like, hey, I need you to help me move on Saturday. We're moving the ark of the covenant. No, this is a big deal. I mean, imagine the most jubilant parade you can think of. There's 30,000 men of Israel involved. There's music, celebrating, dancing, tambourines, cymbals, the whole nine yards. They were already all very much up from their victory over the Philistines. It was always great when they won a battle with them. And now on top of that, they're setting things right with this holy, ancient, sacred artifact this reminder of their glorious past and their great God, and this promise for a bright and prosperous future for Israel. But then something all at once killed the mood. Verses 6 and 7, When they came to the threshing floor of Nakon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, 
And God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. Suddenly the party died. The parade evaporated. King David called the whole thing off. And we're told he was mad about this, that it had happened. This is the sort of story that, that scoffing atheists will point at to try and paint our God as being an arbitrary, cruel, unreasonable meanie. This disproportionate response, you touch my ark, I strike you dead. It's just an involuntary, innocent act, they would say. And God responds with a death sentence. After all, they'll ask, what should Uzzah have done? What, let it fall? Let it tip over and land and spill open? Let the jar of manna eject the manna out onto the earth? And, and, and the pieces of those holy tablets get mixed in with the ground all around? Well, no, of course not. What could he have done? He did his best in a difficult situation. But to those of us who believe, there's a lesson here for us on this fourth Sunday of Lent, and it starts with Uzzah himself. It's noteworthy that he was Abinadab's son, which tells us he almost certainly was raised, at least part of his upbringing, with the ark right there, right nearby. It was something, certainly, that he would have been told to respect, and he understood it was an honor that they had it, but it was something that was always in his home. This object that struck terror into the hearts of heathen kings and had inspired fear and reverence for centuries of Israelites was, it seems, at least in a sense, commonplace for Uzzah. I think of the living room in the house where I grew up. There, I, I, I picture it now. There was this super 80s couch, the kind of couch where you, know, you should have the, the kind of warning like they have at the beginning of some shows on Netflix. It's like photosensitive viewers should be careful. It was crazy. There was uh, a piano. There was an uh, antique clock. I, I can picture it perfectly. And I think of those things, and if I were to see them, I'd go, oh, yeah. And I might feel a little sense of kind of comfort and nostalgia, but I wouldn't feel any sense of awe. And for Uzzah, it seems that this chest, I mean, it was undoubtedly special, a precious family heirloom to be taken care of. They got a new cart, after all. But he apparently did not have the sense of awe and veneration that even the average modern cinephile might have for the Ark's supernatural face-melting power. The Ark had been in the holiest place of the tabernacle. It will eventually wind up in the Holy of Holies, the holiest place of the temple. But for this kid, Uzzah, who grew up with it, it was commonplace. It had always been there. So touching this holy vessel should have been unimaginable, but for him, it was just automatic. Now, how do I know? Am I making all this up? Am I drawing uh, all sorts of unwarranted conclusions? I don't think so. All the clues are here. And the first indication is in verse 3. They put it on a new cart. And you might think, well, that's respect. They got a new cart for the job. Why are they using a cart at all? What are they doing putting the Ark of the Covenant on a cart to begin with as if it was just cargo to be conveniently transported? That's not the proper way to move it. Remember the rings and the poles? Levites and only Levites were to pick it up by those poles and walk with it. That's how it got from place to place. But it seems David didn't say, okay, Levites, remember, brush up on exactly how we are properly to move the Ark of the Covenant so you can do it properly. No, he just sent for it. Hey, I want that thing. Bring it here. And they said, well, we got a cart. That would be easy. And they went about doing it. 
Now, the trip from Kiriath-Jerim to Jerusalem is about 10 miles, and that might seem like a long way to carry something heavy, until you consider that the Levites carried this thing around for a long, long time from the Sinai Desert, hundreds of miles through the wilderness into the Promised Land. In fact, on the day of the siege of Jericho, when they went around Jericho seven times carrying the ark, they went about 10 miles that day alone. But a cart, of course, is more convenient. And if all of this seems kind of superstitious to our modern ears, consider that before the incarnation of Christ, God regularly used physical objects as a way to convey his absolute holiness to physical people living in a physical world so that they would understand, I am holy, set this thing apart. That's what holy means, by the way, set apart. Even today, we have consecrated physical elements that we set apart in our Christian worship. And we know instinctively not to treat them as profane or common. The elements of communion. Remember, the most trouble I ever got in ever growing up. A lot of the times the most trouble I ever got in was with the preacher's kid. I don't know what that says, but uh, we were... I said, can I sit with uh, Chris? He's a very godly man now. I'll go ahead and name him. And my, my mom said, okay, but you better be good. We went up there. It was communion Sunday. I hadn't been baptized. He had. He got the bread and he put it in his belly button. And I remember thinking, oh, we shouldn't be doing that. But I also remember laughing at it, because he was laughing really hard, and laughing is infectious. And afterwards, I didn't need to wait and find out that I was in big trouble. I knew. I knew it was something I needed to repent of, to confess to God, because this was something that should not have been treated in that disrespectful way. If you're a believer, you know this feeling. Something inside of you, this feeling that says, don't bring the youth lock-in nerf fight into the sanctuary, right? That's always the unwritten rule. We're the church kids. Oh yeah, don't, don't go in there. We're not going to run around, tear around, shoot each other, laugh and joke and shouting in there. That's a place where we worship. You know, not to stack up a bunch of Bibles and stand on them in order to hang a banner. That would not feel right. That would be disrespectful. There was a time when uh, I was looking at Facebook on a Saturday, and I saw a live feed from a group that was using the facility. And somebody was in here, they were talking, and and somebody was sipping on a uh, slushy. And I thought, oh, you're not supposed to have that in there, but, you know, don't be that guy, don't be that pastor. And uh, I said, I'm just, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna say anything. And then she turned and set it on the bare altar. And I went, ah! And I got out my phone and I called and I said, please don't do that. Please don't put your slushy on the altar as if it's a snack table. Now, that can become superstitious. Yes, if we begin to go down that road in a, in a very humanistic way. But at the end of the day, this is the same intrinsic sense that guards us against taking the Lord's name in vain, which we're commanded not to do, which means for emptiness, for nothingness defiling holy things, which is sport for those who mock God, ought to be unthinkable for those of us who revere and worship him. And the danger in it is great because once the awe is lost, it's very difficult to restore. I think of Jesus' words about the salt losing its saltiness and becoming common. And he asks the question, how can it become salty again? It's good for nothing but to be scattered on the street and trampled underfoot. Even if we don't openly scoff at holy things and trample them underfoot, if they lose their holiness, the end result is the same. 
The sense of the sacred is something that the American church particularly has all but surrendered, sadly. We joke about holy things more than we really discuss them. We giggle through the Lord's Supper. We make little comments about God's Word. Our sense of the sacred has greatly diminished. And I say our. I'm not yelling at you. From a theological perspective, this is far more dangerous than persecution. Far more dangerous. And so it's no wonder at all that God struck Uzzah dead. It was a simple reminder of a foundational rule of the universe, a rule which Steve just read for us a few minutes ago. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God will not be mocked, and he cannot be tamed. As C.S. Lewis put it, he's good, but he's not safe. And this reality, that our God is not only perfectly loving, but perfectly holy, is essential to really understanding the gospel. When we read, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, it's a stark reminder to all of us, not only that the wages of sin is death, but that our God is not some faceless, mindless force in the universe. Some set of principles to be followed, do this and this will happen, but is a personal being who is not untouched by our own rebellion. He's saddened by our hardened hearts. He's angered by our sin. Yes, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life, and both sides of the equation must be there, or it's not good news. Both sides of the equation must be there, or neither means anything. It's at the cross where we see that perfect meeting of God's wrath against sin and God's love for sinners. His love for sinners so obvious in the fact that the Son would choose to die having done nothing wrong for you and for me, in order that we could be washed clean. His wrath against sin, seen in that he could not punish sin, but by the death even of his own son, and death on a cross. There's something very solemn there, and sadly even that is often made light of, even in the church. And if we read this text and our first thought is, well, that's kind of harsh, that's kind of irrational of God. Realize that's exactly what David thought as well at first. 2 Samuel 6, 8 through 10. And David was angry because the Lord had burst forth against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. See, David wasn't thinking straight. This was not the first time an over-familiarity with the presence of God in the Ark of the Covenant had led to tragedy in the midst of God's people. That's the other story I want to briefly touch on. If you would, flip back in your Bible to 1 Samuel 4. In fact, this is the backstory to why the Ark was in Kiriath-Jerim to begin with. It needed to be brought into Jerusalem from there. And it starts again with an earlier battle with the Philistines, only this time they did not fare so well. Starting at verse 2, we read, The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the troops came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Listen to the wording of that question. Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? They knew that the battle was in God's hands. And they asked the question, what was amiss here? Now, what ought they have done? Examine their hearts and their conduct. Come before the Lord in humility, listening, 
They ought to have gone before Him with sacrifices. They should have repented of their sins in humility. Instead, they ask this question and then just forget it and immediately say, Ah, got it. Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who was enthroned on the cherubim, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. This should be sounding very familiar. It's a very similar thing that happens. And the two sons of a priest, in this case the very wicked sons of Eli, the high priest, enable this kind of thinking. We have God's presence here, guys, in this box. What are we doing? Let's just take it, we'll go to the holy place, grab it, and we'll use it. We can't lose. Uh, yeah, you can. Absolutely. When you treat God's holy presence in the Ark of the Covenant as if it were a box of lucky charms. First Samuel 4, we read what happened, starting with verse 5. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, a God has gone into their camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled, every man to his home. And there was a great slaughter, for there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers, and the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were killed. This is a very dark chapter of Israel's history. And the aftermath is particularly heartbreaking. When news comes back, Eli, the righteous high priest, hears what has happened to his sons, that they have died, that Israel has again been defeated, that the ark has been captured, and being 98 years old, it's too much for him, and he falls backwards. And we read, being a very fat man, his weight is enough to break his neck and kill him. And then, that's not the end of it. It so happens at this very moment, Phineas' wife is giving birth to their first son. And someone has the rotten idea to go in and tell her what has happened while she's about to give birth. She dies in childbirth, and her last words are to name her child Ikavod, which means without glory, because as she says, the glory has departed from Israel. Now on the surface, it might seem like that army... And 1 Samuel had the very opposite view of the ark from what's going on with Uzzah and company in 2 Samuel because they saw it as, as the source of limitless power, not something to just be thrown on a cart and moved around. Maybe they'd been watching Indiana Jones. You'll remember, and it's been 40 years since Raiders came out. If you haven't seen it, I don't care if I spoil it. Indiana Jones opens the, the Bible to exactly the right page for screen time reasons. The government officials point at the picture of the ark, which has like light coming from it. Say, what's that supposed to be? And Indy says, lightning, fire, power of God or something. Then a moment later, Marcus Brody, who's supposed to know these things, says the Bible speaks of the ark leveling mountains and laying waste to entire regions. An army that carries the ark before it is invincible. First of all, what? What mountains? What, what are you talking about? No, it does not talk about that in any way. And secondly, clearly an army carrying the ark before it is not invincible. 
If that army was invincible, then this would not have happened in 1 Samuel 4. You see, these men have the same mistaken notions that we will see causing trouble decades later under King David. That the ark is something special, something powerful, but it's a tool. In this case, a weapon, a means to their ends. Something that helps them accomplish their goals. Something over which they are in control. And people who invest in good tools tend to take good care of them. But they're still just tools. And we see this in the church today, absolutely. Yes, we give lip service to God, but He's just something there to help me accomplish what I want to accomplish. In fact, people will say to me when they hear I'm a pastor, oh yeah, yeah, I'm religious too. Yeah, yeah, I know that, that whenever I need something, I go to God. You know, that, that's the subtext. Oh yeah, I, I pray when I'm in trouble. Oh yeah, I, I, I read my devotional that tells me how to make everything about me and live my best life and be successful and how to properly manipulate God to get behind me in that way. We see this in a sense of kind of deistic nationalism. Oh, we're God's country. We're certainly not the first country where people have said that. But whatever we do, therefore, God must have put his stamp of approval on. That got really dark really fast midway through the 20th century in another country, and it has the potential to get dark anywhere it happens when we start just assuming, yeah, we've got him here in this box, so whatever we want to do, he's on board with us. Both are the results of lost reverence. And on an individual level, it can lead to something that may be even more tragic, lifeless spirituality. But we'll get to that in a minute. Because there's this fascinating coda to this story. The Philistines, when they get the ark, also think of this, and they think in a pagan way because they're pagans. It makes perfect sense. The, the heathen think of God in a heathen way. They think they can just add Israel's God to their collection, but God won't have it. They bring him into the, the temple of Dagon. They bring the ark in, and it does not go well. God won't be anyone's performing elephant. We'll get into that part of the story deeply on Easter morning. I'm not going to blow it right now. But suffice to say, before long, all the Philistines want is to appease this God and get rid of this ark. That's bad, bad juju coming from this thing, and they don't know what to do about it. It has become a curse to them, not a blessing. And so in 1 Samuel 6, exactly one book before the Uzzah story, in 2 Samuel 6, we see the ark being loaded on a cart and carried away. 1 Samuel 6, uh, starting with verse 7, Take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never been a yoke, and yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them. And take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and pull in a box at its side the figures of gold which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way. And then in, in verse 1 of chapter 7, the men of Kiriath-Jerim come and, and take up the ark as it comes into Israel and they bring it to the house of Abinadab on the hill and that is how it winds up there. That's right, the very way the Philistines had sent the ark back to Israel where it wound up in Abinadab's house, a new cart, is exactly the same way Abinadab and sons try to carry the ark up to Jerusalem rather than the way that God had commanded. The problem is a heathen view of the God of Israel. Thankfully, though, this isn't the end of the story for David either. When we left him, he'd called the whole thing off, right? Put the ark in the house of Obed-Edom, let, let, let Obed-Edom deal with this. And it looks like maybe the ark will remain in a guy's house for another 20 years, like it had been. But a funny thing happened then. Obed-Edom clearly treated the ark with the reverence that it was due. And we read in 2 Samuel 6, 
the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. Did you catch that? When those who bore the ark had gone six steps. That means they're carrying the ark this time the way God had commanded. It also means that while David is still shouting and dancing with joy, there is now solemnity in the occasion because they are offering sacrifices in the midst of this as well. This, in fact, changed the whole way that David views the presence of God and how it interacts with the ark. In 1 Chronicles 15, we read this. This is the ark brought to Jerusalem. David built houses for himself in the city of David, prepared a place for the ark of God, and pitched a tent for it. Then David said that no one but the Levites may carry the ark of God, for the Lord had chosen them to carry the ark of the Lord and to minister to him forever. And David assembled all Israel at Jerusalem to bring up the ark to its place, which he had prepared for it. And David gathered together the sons of Aaron and the Levites. And then we get a breakdown of how many from every family, uh, up to verse 12. He said to them, You are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites. Consecrate yourselves, you and your brothers, so that you may bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, to the place that I have prepared for it, because you did not carry it the first time. The Lord our God broke out against us because we did not seek him according to the rule. So the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord. And the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with the poles as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. Now there is reverence and awe. David, the man after God's own heart, had started to think, oh yeah, good old Yahweh rather than it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Quick aside, why six steps? If you're like me, you read that and, and that gets kind of stuck in your mind like a grain of sand. Wait, why six steps? Why after they went six steps did they offer the sacrifice? Well, it may be that Uzzah only made it six steps before he died. That's what some have suggested. If you've ever tried to move something on wheels over uneven terrain, you might imagine that's the case. I don't think so, because it was when they got to someone else's vineyard, which is probably not six steps away from their house. I think there, there's something deeper going on here. It's something more symbolic. Seven is the number of completion. Six is the number of man and human effort. Six would answer nicely to the way they had previously tried to carry the ark. And so before they even take that seventh step, they stop and they sanctify the entire endeavor. To say to God, we aren't trying to use you. We aren't presuming to treat your holy things as common for our own purposes. They make the sacrifices and then take that seventh step. And then they bring it all the way into the holy city. And there's a happy ending for almost everyone involved. And I think Lent is a very good time to make this same correction in our lives. If we've become over-familiar or casual in our relationship with God, we can recommit ourselves to true reverence. You might say, wait a minute, if the salt loses its saltiness, how does it become salty again? With God, all things are possible. 
For us to say to God, I won't treat you as a tool to accomplish my will like I have been. I've been giving into that temptation. Instead, I will say, not my will, but your will be done. And this is needed today. For many Christians today, they'd have more of a sense of awe and respect and wonder upon meeting a celebrity or political figure they admire than they have in approaching the throne of the Most High God of the universe. We don't want to lose the passion that David exhibited as the ark is carried into Jerusalem. We don't want to fall into stark, cold formality. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Here I am. But we certainly don't want to lose the reverence that he had rediscovered on that day either. I think it's David himself who sums it up nicely in Psalm 2, verses 11 and 12. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish in the way. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. These two things aren't at odds. To serve the God in fear, to rejoice with trembling, to acknowledge God's holiness and His love, His wrath against sin, and His mercy for sinners. And these things aren't at odds at all. In fact, they feed each other. Our Paul Stevens warns against what he calls a quenched passion, even among the clergy. He writes this, In many theological colleges, people are progressively inoculated against passionate Christianity by constantly handling the outside of holy things. And among church members, consumers pay religious professionals to entertain them, and the people evaluate sermons as though they were at a country livestock auction, failing to be grasped by the passionate privilege and duty of the whole people of God. A lost sense of awe inoculates us against passionate Christianity. Inoculating is on our minds right now. You get a shot, and then you've got the uh, harmless form of a virus in you, and then the, the, the real thing can't come and, and affect you. Well, we don't want to be inoculated to passionate Christianity, to, to be so familiar and comfortable with it, with the outside of the holy things, with some harmless version of it, that we cannot be affected any longer by its power. And I think that Dr. Stevens borrowed that line, constantly handling the outside of holy things from St. Francis de Salle. And I think it's particularly fitting to this text. What he's saying is that by continually reading and studying and teaching God's Word as a vocation, people like me can become over-familiar with it and think of it as just another tool of the trade. And the same thing can happen for the people in the pews. That's you guys. Particularly those raised in the church. Like Uzzah was raised with the ark, and it became commonplace. Those who haven't had their lives radically transformed by its power all at once in some great coming-to-faith moment, but rather have seen one baby step at a time God's effect on their lives. And so touching the outside of the holy things slowly builds up an immunity to their effects. But what happens in our text when someone handles the outside of a holy thing without the proper respect, without the amazement and the awe. Well, it leads to his death, and that is what can happen to us as well, spiritual death. Of course, it would be blasphemous and today really ironic for me to really compare our holy God with a so-called mad elephant that was really just a frightened animal who should have been in an animal sanctuary not on the streets of a major city or made to perform in a parking lot in Lansing, Michigan. But that's how the human heart is tempted to treat God. 
The world's religions are all about appeasing and controlling their gods, but we cannot give in to that. Still, the temptation exists for those who have followed Jesus for years to treat the Lion of Judah like some sad circus lion of ages past, declawed, thoroughly trained, who does tricks on command for us. In fact, it was in the context of a lion that Lewis wrote that famous line I quoted earlier. Right? You remember when in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, when, when Susan and Lucy learned that Aslan, the Christ figure in the book, is a lion, Susan says, I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Is he safe? Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. We can ignore God's wrath and think only of his love and redefine it all we want, but that's just willful ignorance. Our God is a consuming fire. He is holy, holy, holy. Our Lord Jesus is the first and the last, the beginning and the end, described by John in a vision here in Revelation 1. This way, listen to this. I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. That is the God we serve. That is the God that we approach together. And yes, we come before his throne boldly because we are his children. And there is absolutely no conflict between feeling comforted by the presence of God and feeling awe and reverence at the presence of God. Both are needed to understand who our God is. One last thought. Even though the story ends with David bringing the ark into Jerusalem, as I mentioned, it's not a happy ending for everyone. First, Uzzah. He's dead. His family is undoubtedly mourning as well. But secondly, when we read the, the little coda to this story, uh, 2 Samuel 6.16, As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, that's David's wife, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. There are those outside the church and even those within who will not encourage your passion in serving Jesus and worshiping him. Who will not encourage your sense of reverence and awe either. People today do not want to be reminded that our God is good but not safe. They want a God who will not even challenge them to change. In fact, the, the ringing of this bell continually is, wait a minute. How hateful are you that you follow a religion where there's a God who says, I must change, that I'm not perfect the way that I am. They want a teddy bear, a genie, an imaginary friend that can be wheeled out on a new cart to get them anything they want. The kind of God who can be summoned when they're in need, in need of help, rescue, whatever, and then forgotten. A God who would never become angry with our misuse of his holy name or his word or his sacraments because... He's just happy to be involved, right? He's happy someone thought to take him out of storage. That is not our God. Our God is the God of heaven and earth. And when we read this passage, and our first instinct is, well, hold on, I don't get it. Yes, he broke a rule, but his heart was in the right place that shows how our heart 
is not. How we still need to repent. How we still need to bow the knee before God and say, not my will, but your will be done. How we still need to begin to lift him up higher and higher and say, God of heaven, I am in awe that I can come into your presence at all. I am full of wonder and gratitude that Jesus would die on a cross to grant me access, and I will not use that as an excuse to treat you as commonplace. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you that there are reminders throughout your scriptures that you are not unapproachable, that you are, are someone that we can come to through the, the blood of Jesus and pour out our hearts and cast our cares around you and, and you will hear us and you will, you will take a heavy yoke from us and give us your easy yoke that you are our loving Father, our Abba. And we also thank you for passages that remind us that you are the King of Kings and that you are a consuming fire and it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God that you are not a safe lion, but that you are good. And Lord, we pray that we would find both of these to be realities in our spiritual lives so that we are not robbed of our joy and that our passion is not quenched. That, Lord, we would never be inoculated from following you in awe and passion by the continual handling of the outside of holy things. Where we have begun to think of your word this holy meal, the waters of baptism, the gathering of the saints for worship as common, we pray, Lord, that you would give us a renewed sense of awe, that you would fan the flame. Lord, where the wick is smoldering, we pray that you would bring it back to full blue fire, burning hot for you. We pray these things in Jesus' holy, precious name. Amen.